and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insight podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and to get an update on economics, markets, and other topics of interest for institutional investors. Each podcast, I'm joined by QIC's Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, who, for our regular listeners, will be aware has just come back from a well-deserved break. So hello, Matthew, and welcome back. Well, thanks, Alison. It's great to be back. I tell you what, you don't want to be away for too long, do you, in the current environment? Like, what a, <laughs> week, we've, what a week we've just had. I get back, Silicon Valley Bank and then Signature Bank, two US regional banks that are tech-related, they blow up on us. Just as I thought we've got over that hurdle, we had Credit Suisse blow up. You know, we've got troubles now with a systemically important global bank. And just as the Credit Suisse situation is settling down, we're back to the US with another regional bank, First Republic Bank, requiring liquidity injections. So much has happened in this last week. Look, Alison, can you fill us in what's been happening while I catch my breath? <laughs> no problems at all. Look, it's never a dull day, Matthew, and we have missed you. But look, to fill you in a little bit, and, and, and for our listeners, of course, as well, some really different circumstances, but all, I think, really interesting and important developments. So the first two you referred to as tech sector banks, and I think that's correct. They were banks largely to, you know, Silicon Valley was a lot of the, the venture capital banks bank there. And there was some initial cause that, you know, was this a, a private equity investment or a venture investment issue? Look, I don't think that's the case at all. I think, the, you know, the private equity sector continues to be doing what it's supposed to do. But for Silicon Valley Bank in particular, it was a really poor case of a mismatch of duration. They had some mm, short-term mm. liabilities in those deposits and they invested long um, in US Treasury with those assets and that caused an issue. So to give it maybe a little bit more colour, you know, there's a lot of deposits coming into the bank. The bank had grown really rapidly along with the, the growth actually in the tech sector. So they paid a relatively small amount of um, interest on those short-term deposits, but they took those deposits and invested them long. But investors are pretty rational, and as they worked out they could get a higher rate of return on short-term deposits as well, they started to withdraw their money. So investors were withdrawing money, their their short-term liquidity was drying drying up, so they needed to sell some of these longer-dated securities. But with interest rates having increased, those securities had decreased in value. So this then created an issue of was there um, a solvency issue? Were the assets sufficient enough to cover those deposits? And it caused an old-fashioned run on bank capital. You yeah. know, so it was a very quick demise for Silicon Valley Bank, who was over US two hundred billion in size, which I believe is around about the size of ANZ for Australian investors. So it was a big, in the scale of things, a pretty big bank that had a very quick demise. But the regulators stepped in; they've given surety that the deposits are secured, and that was a very similar circumstance as well for Signature bank. So it's really sort of given calm to the market there. Just on that point about the size of uh, SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, you, you mentioned it's a little bit over $200 billion in assets, so about $220 billion worth of assets, and that's a big size in Australia, but it turns out to be quite a small size in the US. And one of the issues is with the while back of the Dodd-Frank's legislation by Trump, regulator is no longer required to put as much emphasis on to monitoring banks under, guess what number, $250 billion worth of assets. So one of the consequences of what we're seeing with those regional banks, maybe, maybe, Alison, is is a relook at that rollback of the Dodd-Franks because there's an argument regulator really took its eye off the, the ball there, allowing the mismatch, as you put in, in duration across the assets and liabilities of yeah. that bank. 
Really good point, Matt. And I think, you know, that is probably the call of the day that, you know, potentially the regulators have been allowed to be a little bit asleep at the wheel to allow some of this Mm, to happen. mm. Just quickly on your Credit Suisse question, you know, a very different um, circumstance. You know, Credit Suisse is one that for a number of reasons has been in the press over over a range of years. And it wasn't a solvency issue in this case. It was more of an issue of short-term liquidity. And, you know, this arose on the basis of, you know, some investors choosing to withdraw as a normal, normal course of business but also because there were some announcements that perhaps there were some deficiencies in its risk management processes and and that, again, caused investors to um, be a little bit concerned and we we saw the share price decrease by, I think it was around about 75% from its highs. So it's quite extraordinary. So, But again, we saw some very swift action. Actually, within an hour of going to the Swiss National Bank, um, they came up with a facility that allowed Credit Suisse to draw on on liquidity as it's needed. And it's ended up drawing on $54 billion of Swiss francs to make sure that the market can be comfortable, that the you know, deposits are safe, liquidity is available, um, and that the system is secured. So again, um, different circumstance, but somewhat isolated in relation to not necessarily about a systemic credit crisis or a systemic banking crisis, but more individual specific issues that have occurred. In the case of First Republic Bank, that has been sorted out, but in a slightly different manner. And actually, I think a really clever manner whereby, you know, the regulators have stepped in and provided some liquidity, but they've also leaned on these big globally systemic banks that you referred to, Matthew, and saying, Mm. right, you can also put some capital in. And and in doing so, they're saying, right, it's not just us that's going to backstop the industry and make sure we've got a financial stability across, across the sector but you're going to rely on yourselves to ensure this financial stability as well. And I think that has been a really strong message. And so all in all, notwithstanding a pretty volatile week, as you might expect in markets, overnight, a lot calmer. You know, we've seen equities bounce back a reasonable amount, really sort of thinking that the steps have been taken have been enough and markets have been calm. So all okay for the moment, but I think it's a little bit of watch this space because it does appear that there's just a few of these cracks around the edges appearing. Nothing systemic, as I say, at the moment, but, you know, it's something to watch. Yeah, I think you make a great point in, in clearly articulating that distinction between Credit Suisse and and those regional banks in uh, the US and not to conflate the two issues. You know, there's really specific differences. And the point that you raise about the response, the ability of regulators and central banks to be able to respond to, to sort of stem the contagion to some sense is a really key point. Of course, we're still watching that space, but that that's a great key point, I think, that you've made there, Alison. You're listening to Alison Hill and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where I'm discussing markets and economics with Dr. Matthew Peter in what is a very, very busy week for events and for, um, for data. So it's important that we should touch on some of the other data releases and events. And overnight, we saw the, or from Australian time, we saw the ECB increase its rates by 50 basis points to 3%. We also saw the US inflation print at 6% and strong Australian labour market data. And I'd be really interested to get your view on the ECB actions, um, as well as you think what all of these events uh, might mean for the Fed's fund rate with with some of this speculation that will they go as hard and as fast um, with some of these other events happening in the financial sector? Mm, yeah. Well, look, the ECB following through with that 50 basis point rate hike 
was pretty predictable as they, across all of the major central banks, have been the most strident, I would argue, in signalling rate hikes. And they've also faced in Europe with the most serious inflation problems. So that's not surprising they've been the most strident. Given that backdrop, given that forward guidance, which they have been given, and of course, Lagarde in her press conference set refused to give forward guidance from this point going forward. But given the forward guidance that had been given, any back down in a 50 basis point rate hike in this meeting just overnight, I think would have run the risk of signalling uncertainty about the stability of the European banking sector and that they couldn't afford to have to allow that interpretation of anything other than a 50 basis point rate hike. They couldn't have allowed that interpretation of the market because it would have just led to another potential, another huge bout of liquidity. Yeah, it's a good point. But do you think that's where we're at with the Fed as well? Because they were talking about maybe a 50 basis point hike and now the markets are pricing in closer to 25 and at one stage we're pricing in nothing. Yeah. You know, So are they going to signal that everything's all okay and go ahead with 50 or, or perhaps temper well, that a bit? The Fed's a trickier one. I agree with you there, uh, Alison. Look, Powell's been oscillating between holding on to the 25 basis points, which they they shift downshifted from 50 to 25 basis points over the last two meetings. He's been oscillating and putting 50 back on the table, right? But he, he hasn't really been committing one way or the other. Similar to the ECB, the point you make, the Fed also has to be aware of completely backing away from higher rate hikes to avoid reinforcing, you know, that market fragility about, you know, poor sentiment around the banking sector. So you raise the issue about the data that's coming out. Well, the data on the economy in the US has been weakening. That says to a stay at 25 basis points, but core inflation, which came out last night, it's been stubbornly slow in falling. It's it's falling just by 10 basis points per month over the last three months. That lends to them wanting to ramp up to go 50. But on the balance of risks, I, I think they have enough flex. They have enough room to sort of continue just with the 25 basis points for the time being. I think that makes sense. Interesting. Wait, now, look, I'm just really interested in the Australian data that came out. Now, that creates a dilemma, I think, for, for Dr. Lowe and the markets in Australia. They are pricing a pause in April. Do you think that's likely? I think it is. I think that it's likely the RBA is going to be on hold. Look, Phil Lowe has been backing away from what was really quite strident rhetoric, you know, continual rate hikes over coming months was what was the rhetoric in the in, coming out of their February meeting. But more recently, in particularly last week in his testimony to Parliament, he's floating the possibility now, this is prior to the blow up in uh, in the banks we've seen, he's, he's floating the possibility of a pause. Now, he and the RBA are coming under tremendous pressure not to completely destroy household confidence with further rate hikes. And and I believe this pressure must be weighing on him and the RBA more generally. Now, if you look at the data, the wage data that we just got out in February, which was underperforming expectations, and the, the rather disappointing Q4 GDP outturn actually give him you know, rationales to be able to pause. Although, as you point out, the February uh, labour market data, which was released yesterday, pushes the dial the other way. But when you add on to that the financial instability, which for Australia, for the low and the RBA is a global problem, not a domestic problem, so it doesn't have that issue about, or if I signal 
you know, that I'm just waiting to see how things pan out as a, as a rationale, part of a rationale to pause. It's not going to do anything in terms of market sentiment towards um, systemic banking risk. That gives him additional scope to pause. So I'm leaning towards a pause actually in April. Really interesting take there, Matthew. And I do think there's a lot of talk about crisis and potentially some of the issues we've seen this week could have actually led to genuine crises without, you know, really strong intervention, which we saw and swift intervention, which was terrific. But I think the other thing we need to remember is that the central banks are trying to engineer a slowdown. They are trying to engineer, you know, a change to the outlook. And sometimes there's some casualties along the way. So good to stay vigilant, good to stay alert, never a dull day. So Thanks again, Matthew, for joining me and welcome back. It's delightful to have you back. And thank you also to our listeners for taking 10. 